You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 228 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. First of all, I want to thank Mark S. for becoming a patron. I appreciate that greatly. Thanks a lot. And if anyone else wants to support the podcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist or simply click the link in the program notes. There are some perks, of course, but mostly the perk is the satisfaction of knowing that you are sitting at the round table of divine mystery as an intergalactic knight of this podcast. Now, if you are new to the podcast, perhaps you need a second opinion before you decide to become a patron. So here is just one review I had on iTunes a while back. This one is from somebody called Ad Vitam Aeternam. Greetings. Love the show. Short, to the point, perfect. Thanks for that nice review. Now, before we get to the main topic of this episode, I heard something glorious in conjunction with the mass shooting at a mosque in Christchurch earlier this year. A mosque in Christ's church. A mosque in Christ's church. All right. Uh, anyway, check this out. We are monitoring a reported mass shooting at a mosque near the New Zealand city of Christchurch. Witnesses report dozens of shots fired and people fleeing the mosque. The shooter appears to be at large. We are still trying to get confirmation of some official details on this. Survival stories, there'd have to be a few more remarkable than this man, Farid Ahmed. Uh, he managed to escape the gunfire in his wheelchair. Sadly, his wife and dozens of his friends were killed. And look, I had the pleasure of spending the day with him yesterday. And his uh, attitude to loss is amazing. But his uh, thoughts on the gunman, well, they're even more remarkable. Have a look at his story. I lost my wife, but I don't hate the killer. Uh, as a person, I love him. But... I'm sorry, I cannot support what he did, but I think somewhere along in his life, maybe he was hurt, but he could not translate that hurt into a positive manner. That's where he's doing wrong. People um, who carry out a terrorist attack, you know, they want people to be afraid. They want to incite between one group with another. Maybe they were hoping that if they target some Muslim, then maybe Muslim will retaliate. But we Muslim, we Muslim leaders are saying, that's not gonna happen. We will not allow you to feel afraid or to hate other people because some of your uh, horrendous attacks. I don't have any grudge against him. I have forgiven him and I'm praying for him that God will guide him and then one day he will be a savior. I don't hate the killer. Uh, as a person, I love him. I have forgiven him. And I'm praying for him 
that God will guide him and then one day he will be a savior. We need more of this attitude in the world. Reminds me of what Elon Musk said when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast a while back. No, I think, you know, I think people should be nicer to each other and give more credit to, to others and don't assume that they're mean until you know they're actually mean. It's easy to demonize people. You're usually wrong about it. People are nicer than you think. Wouldn't hurt to have more love in the world. Now, in this last episode of May 2019, we shall take a closer look at universal basic income. If you don't know what universal basic income is, then here is a very short introduction created by Cognitive Media and Anthony Painter, RSA. Nothing undermines life more than insecurity, but for too many, the last few decades have become ever more insecure. Work is less certain and more stressful, especially for those in average incomes and lower. And we have a tax and benefit system that is complex and sometimes punitive. We could do something completely different, like give a basic monthly payment to every single citizen. This is called a basic income. It's a centuries-old idea favoured by philosophers, social reformers, civic leaders from across the political spectrum, and it could help us meet our needs today. Basic income would provide a platform to smooth the life transitions millions of us will face in the coming years, including changes that may come from technology. It's the best insurance policy there is. It would be a solid foundation to enable people to structure their lives in a way that unleashes their talent. Whether we want to earn or learn, care or set up a business, basic income could offer us greater security and a better, more creative life. Some people say basic income will make people lazy. We don't accept the premise that people are naturally lazy, but anyway, basic income is a system that actually incentivizes work. It gets rid of effective tax rates of 70% or more for the bottom half of earners. Some say it's unaffordable. Experts have shown it could be funded without massively increasing the size of the state. In the RSA's model, an additional 1% of GDP would be needed. Not insignificant, but no more than the cost of recent changes to taxes and benefits. And these changes would support everyone, not just the big corporations and the privileged few who have tended to gain from recent big moves in the tax system. The basic income movement is expanding globally. Pilots are planned in the Netherlands, Finland and Canada. We believe it is time for more trials in a UK city, in the US and many other places across the globe too. Basic income could be a means of rethinking what matters to us all. A platform to help us strengthen relationships to one another, improve our working lives and support an even better, more creative society. Are you ready to join the movement? I personally think universal basic income is a great idea for a multitude of reasons. And it has also been shown in trials that it does work. And currently US presidential candidate Andrew Yang is running on this concept. And I think that is why the topic has come back in the news recently. Of course Americans, at least mainstream Americans, they think uh, universal basic income is some sort of communism, socialism scam that simply doesn't work. Here is Fox News' take on the topic so you can get an idea of what the mainstream view is. Free cash, is that an oxymoron? Is that sort of like jumbo shrimp? 
Yeah, it is sort of like that. I don't know what it is. Why doesn't Branson, who's wealthy enough himself, to just do it personally? I think that's what he should do if he believes in it so much. Just do it on his own accord. Uh, my, that's my thought. It's a silly idea. You never want to pay people not to work. You never want to do that, and you want to pay them only when they do work, unless they can't work, of course, or unless there's some other uh, intervening problem that really needs some help there for a while. But, but bottom line is you never want to penalize workers and reward non-workers. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of non-workers, you're going to get the growth stopped, and you're going to get the economy going in the, in the tank. So that's not what you want. You know, Art, I think it was Sweden, right, uh, here recently that uh, pulled the plug on this experiment. Uh, they, it came with ma major fanfare, universal basic income. You didn't even have, by the way, part of their deal is you didn't even have to look for a job. You know, you just got paid a couple thousand dollars a month for being you. Uh, and and, and <laughs> it, just, it just didn't work out. It's a silly idea. You never want to pay people not to work. It's a silly idea. You never want to pay people not to work. First of all, any major news source that thinks instead of reporting facts, they're morons. I think it was Sweden, right, uh, here recently that uh, pulled the plug on this experiment. Uh, they, it came with ma major fanfare. The trial was actually done in Finland, you dumb fuck. <laughs> Jeez. I can't tell how many times I've caught CNN and Fox News committing serious geographical errors. Now, if they can't even learn to read a map, then how can you ever take anything they say seriously? They sound serious, they wear a suit and tie, they look like they know what they're talking about, but they don't. They do not. A silly idea, well... People can think what they like, but universal basic income is not a silly idea, in my opinion. Here's another gargantuan fucktard speaking about universal basic income. Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. So an idea that is returning like a bladed boomerang is this question of, or the argument for, a universal basic income or UBI. Uh, it uh, has been experimented on in the past in the 60s and 70s. It's uh, coming back to uh, my home province of Ontario. It was uh, recently rejected by uh, three quarters of uh, Swedish voters uh, this summer. And the idea basically is that this complicated alphabet soup of uh, benefits provided by the government for people who are poor or disabled or single moms or whatever, well, that's just, it's too, ma too much of a mess, it's too much overhead, and there is the problem of the welfare cliff, which is where uh, you lose benefits by increasing your income to the point where the actual tax rate, sort of quote tax rate for increasing your income if you're poor, can be actually over 100%. In other words, you get a raise, you end up with less take-home money uh, and or benefits. So this is a big giant mess. So what we need to do is sweep all of that bureaucracy away and just have a simple universal basic income. And uh, this will deal with the problem, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, of automation that the robots are going to be taking all of our jobs. And therefore, we're going to have so much wealth because of automation that we could just afford to hand out this money to everyone. Huh? The robots are going to be taking all of our jobs. And therefore, we're going to have so much wealth because of automation that we could just afford to hand out this money to everyone. The main argument is not because of robots or automation. It is all about liberation. 
But I'm not uh, as qualified to talk about this topic as one of the most prominent researchers and advocates of universal basic income, professor and economist Guy Standing. The edited talk you are about to hear comes from an amazing podcast episode from the podcast Future Thinkers. Check them out at futurethinkers.org. And this is from their episode 52. And if you like what you hear, I suggest you check out the full episode. Well, I think it's important to start with what are the justifications for a basic income? Because many of the objections that have been made, and I'm going to talk about the 17 standard objections which I discuss in my book, many of those objections don't relate to the justifications for a basic income. And those justifications are fundamentally ethical. They're moral. They're philosophical. And they are, they are something that is the main reason, as far as I'm concerned, for supporting a basic income. If you want a good society, then the values I'm about to mention should be absolutely central to building such a society, and at the moment, they're not. Now, the first justification for a basic income is that it's a matter of social justice. For me, this is the really important starting point. The wealth and income of all of us is far more the result of work and effort and achievements of the many generations before us than anything we do individually by ourselves. The second justification for a basic income is that it would promote freedom. Now, the trouble with most social policies as they exist today is the opposite. They don't promote freedom, they constrain freedom. They apply behavioral conditionalities, for example. They say, we will only give you a benefit if you perform this, that, or the other. And this, that, and the other, we believe, or we say, is good for you. This very paternalistic argument, when you look at what they've been doing, is very, very much a matter of limiting personal freedom. By contrast, the basic income provides everybody with a modest, guaranteed amount whereby the bargaining position with figures of authority and figures capable of oppressing them or exploiting them is strengthened. Their power to say no to an unwelcome grope an unwelcome bureaucrat, an unwelcome employer. What I've argued is that the emancipatory value of a basic income is greater than the money value. The third reason is that a basic income would give a person basic security. Not total security, which is which is always dangerous, leads to carelessness, but basic security. Basic security means that in extremis, I can rely on it and I feel secure. The 
idea that we're all here to chase jobs and be in jobs all the time and consume and consume and consume is is idiotic, obviously. And the the reason I think many artists and cultural people appreciate basic income is that it would encourage us at the edge to relax more and to be risk-taking in a creative sense. You know, I I may not be a good musician, but I could spend more time trying to do it. I may not be a good something else, but I would want to spend more time on it. If we think about it, some of the greatest geniuses, if not many of the greatest geniuses in history, had they not been able to afford downtime, they would not have produced their great works of genius. I mean, we found in our pilots in India in particular that this made a huge difference for women. Uh, you know, and you don't need to go into why, but it's obvious. And that's why women have benefited. I'll give you an example. Uh, we were doing a pilot in, in Namibia. And at the end of the pilot, I was visiting the villages and I called some young women across to ask them. And I, I asked them, what was the best thing about having this basic income over the past two years? What was the best thing? And they giggled. And then one of them said to me, you know, when the men came down from the fields at the end of the month, we always had to say yes. Now we have our own basic income, we can say no. And that graphic example, whenever I give it in speeches, is understood by everybody. And you can replicate it in numerous variants, whether you be in Canada or in Thailand or in in Switzerland. People understand that. Well, there are the various objections that have been made over the years. I am totally convinced I've heard all of them that could be made. I've listed in the book a whole chapter called the 17 standard objections. I won't go through all of them now, but I've went through them and dissected them to my satisfaction anyhow. I think they're all refutable. The main objections are first and foremost comes from people who haven't really thought about it. They haven't been in the situation where they would understand what it would mean to them. And they say, well, I'm against giving something for nothing. Um, I'm against it. They should work for their money. They shouldn't get something for nothing. Well, if you look at this reality of society, a huge minority of people get a lot of something for nothing in the form of inherited wealth. If you're against giving something for nothing, you should stand very strongly against inherited wealth. You should say there should be no inherited wealth. Now, the more, more virulent criticism is, of course, that if you gave everyone a basic income, they'd become lazy. They would stop working, stop doing jobs. The society couldn't afford that because we need the contribution of everybody. I think that is an insult to the human condition. 
If I gave you a hundred dollars or a hundred pounds or whatever it might be per week, you are not going to start sitting on your backside and doing nothing. The human condition is we all want to improve our lives. If the argument that giving money induces laziness, well, that's a very good argument for taking money away from rich people because they got a lot of money and therefore we want to increase their work by taking money away from them. But of course, that's not what happens. And the idea that a basic income would lead to laziness is not only wrong because we want to improve conditions, but it's wrong empirically. I mean, we find that people who have basic security work more, not less. They have more energy, they have more confidence, they take entrepreneurial risk in small or big ways. They don't fear taking those risks to the same extent. And they do other forms of work that are not labor. If you can't spend a lot of time caring for your relatives or caring for your community or garden, if you're in desperate insecurity and you have to labor as much as you can because wages are low, et cetera, et cetera, and you're insecure and you have to be saying yes to a boss and be at his disposal at all times, you are able to be in control if you have a basic income that's guaranteed to you and therefore you will work on many of the things that are useful, valuable, but are not valued in the market. So those things go along. And and empirically, we find that, in fact, a basic income induces more work, not less. And then the third objection is, of course, that it's unavoidable, that you can't possibly give everybody in society a basic income because back of the envelope calculations show that it would take a third of total national income. Now, this argument is very one-sided because what we would be doing is you provide everybody with a basic income, but you would be taxing back from the, the wealthy so that the net costs would be well below the gross costs. And of course, it would have dynamic effects because it would be a substitute for some other things. Uh, some means-tested benefits, it would be a substitute for that. And it would also have beneficial effects for the economy, for society, which are typically not taken into account in those back-of-the-envelope calculations. I strongly believe that we could afford a modest basic income with relative lack of difficulty. I've gone through the, the standard objections. In my own country, the UK, the government each year operates over 1,000 forms of selective tax reliefs. What that means is they give tax privileges or subsidies to a huge number of people. Turns out that's highly regressive. In other words, the people who gain from those tax reliefs are the wealthy and the middle income groups, not the poor. And that the total sum comes those foregone revenues comes to over 400 billion pounds a year. Now, if you allocated those 400 billion pounds a year, instead of giving them as tax reliefs, 
you gave them as a basic income, you can easily afford to give a basic income. Similarly, with quantitative easing, the governments have pursued in recent years to stimulate their economies. They poured money to bankers and the banking communities, hundreds of billions of yen, dollars, euros, pounds, which have gone to the wealthy, the financiers, who've been able to make more money and more profits and go to tax havens, etc. So anybody who says we can't afford it is either naive or deceiving us. I've been fortunate in being able to put to test this idea that I've held firmly for 30 years. That doesn't happen to many people and I feel very privileged that that has been the case. And we were involved in a pilot in Namibia, which back in the, early in this century, and that was a very successful pilot because it showed the new beneficial nutrition effects for children, the improved schooling and the attitudes, the increase in economic activity in the villages, growing more food, the decline of economic crime, and the rising status of the women in particular. It was a very useful pilot. The pilots we did in India, which has resulted in a book called Basic Income, a Transformative Policy for India, began with a small experiment in West Delhi, where we gave 450 families the choice. It's not an ideal experiment of a basic income, but it was a moving towards what we wanted to do, a choice between sticking with the subsidized goods that they were provided, rice, sugar, flour, and kerosene. So they got those subsidized prices or being given a basic income each month of equivalent value. And it was very interesting that about half chose to switch to the basic income and half stayed with the, what they knew and received, the, the rations. But in the course of the pilot, which lasted nearly two years, a large number of people in that community who had opted to stay on the rations were coming to us and saying, please, can we switch to the basic income? It's quite instructive. But we couldn't do that because we'd agreed with a design that everybody through the experiment should stick to what they chose initially, but they wanted to shift. And what we found in that experiment, again, is that there were significant improvements in uh, nutrition and health of children because the families that had the basic income were buying better food, better quality stuff, and more, you know, according to their tastes, and were making choices to improve their family's living standards. Then we did a much bigger pilot in Madhya Pradesh, where we gave a basic income to every man, woman, and child. The child paid half what we were giving to the adults. A basic income for 18 months. And we get that was 6,000 individuals. 6,000 individuals in eight villages, separate villages. And we monitored what happened to them 
by comparison with the past and with what happened during the course of receipt and at the end, but also by comparison with similar type of people living in similar villages, similar size, etc. And that was a total sample, about 12,000 individuals. And that, of course, is a big sample. You can do a lot of analysis of the outcomes and so on. And what we found is that there were, relative to the other communities that weren't receiving the basic income, and in terms of absolute changes, there were huge improvements in child nutrition, child school attendance, child school performance, in health, the use of health care, taking medicines more regularly and to completion, for example. There were huge improvements in economic activity. Production went up. People were using part of their basic income to buy seeds and small equipment and increasing their work and output. And in particular, women's economic status improved and women's uh, independent uh, working capacity improved. And there were community effects on sanitation and an organization of things like petty transport and things like that. The end result of the experiments there was that it was what we call transformative. The, all these things individually fed into community benefits, which transformed those local economies. And I would go there, I would rarely leave without tears in my eyes because it had been so, so wonderfully liberating for those people. Check out futurethinkers.org or read Guy Standing's books or have a look at guystanding.com. I'm actually in an email conversation with Guy Standing, so perhaps he'll appear on the podcast at some point. Fingers crossed. Now I want to play a short, another talk with Guy Standing, a short one, uh, that was recorded at a TEDx event in Como. I want to take up the theme of this wonderful Como TEDx by talking about bridges. The first bridge I want to mention is that 800 years ago, a 10-year-old king who didn't know what he was doing, he agreed to a document which guaranteed every man and woman in society a right to subsistence, a right, in effect, to a basic income, a right to a home, a right to work, and live in the commons. He spent the next 50 years of his reign trying to reform that. But he was wisely told that if he tried, there would be a revolution. Because the people wanted to keep the right to a basic income. And I want to trace that history as a bridge from 800 years ago to when I was a student and I came to believe that the only progressive policy to come in response 
to the neoliberal economics that we were seeing develop would be a basic income. Let me first define it and then talk about the second bridge. A basic income would be if every one of us in this room and the children would have the right to a modest, regular payment from the state that would be unconditional in behavioral terms, paid in cash, you can do what you like with it, and it would be individual. That's what we mean by a basic income. The rhetoric of the Movimento Cinque Stelle has started to change things, but they don't quite mean the same thing as I might mean it. With that, we can leave aside. Because the second bridge is this. Today, we are on the bridge at the beginning. But we're faced by eight giants that are blocking our path to a good society. But another metaphor that one can use is that we are faced with a tempesta perfetta, a perfect storm of factors which are suddenly making the advocacy of a basic income almost mainstream. For many years, people like myself were regarded as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Communist, idealist, utopian, you name it. A lot of rude words were thrown in our direction. But in the last five years, this perfect storm has changed the dialogue, changed the atmosphere. So suddenly, we're becoming almost respectable. It's a dangerous position to be. So one gets invited to TEDx talks, when before one would have been regarded as too mad to invite. Now, what are these giants that are standing before us? The first giant is that we are faced by incredible inequality. Globalization and the technological changes and the political changes have resulted in a terrible model of capitalism which a tiny plutocracy is absorbing and taking billions out of it, leaving the rest of us to squabble over a diminishing amount of income. This is a cause of migration. This is a cause of all the other things I'm going to talk about. So your plutocrats up here are making billions. One of my favorites is Jeff Bezos. Now, Jeff Bezos, each week of this year, each week, he has increased his income by $400 million. Now, I haven't made $400 million in the past six months. And I dare say most of you are like that. Every week. Now, these plutocrats, of course, are striding the globe. One of their people is in the White House, and many others are in positions of power. The real message of this is that the income distribution system of the 20th century has broken down. It used to be 
that when you had a capitalist economy, the share of income going to profits and capital and rents and the share going to labor were roughly constant. But in the last 30 years, all over the world, the share going to capital has gone up, the share going to labor has gone down. I don't need to tell you that our wages have been stagnating in real terms, becoming more volatile. The story of inequality is unsustainable because there is nothing out there which is reversing this trend. The second giant goes along with it. It's about chronic insecurity. Millions of people out there, and I dare say in here as well, are suffering from chronic insecurity. Their lives are defined by a feeling of uncertainty, unknown unknowns. And this insecurity cannot be insured against. The shocks and the hazards go on, and it leads to what I've called the four A's. A sense of anxiety, a sense of anomie, desperate feelings you can't do anything about it, a sense of alienation, I feel alienated from what I'm doing, and a sense of anger. Anger out there is justifiable. And this leads to the third giant. We have a pandemic of stress. People feel stressed. They feel that they don't have any sense of control of their lives. They feel they don't know what's the best thing to do with their time. They're part of the precariat or could be part of the precariat tomorrow. And this stress has led to morbidity, to more suicidal tendencies, to an incredible phenomenon. Life expectancy in many countries has stopped going up and started to come down. So even middle-aged people, like many of you in this room, have suddenly found that you're suffering from morbidity. And this goes with the next giant. A sense of precarity. My books on the precariat have somehow changed my life as well as led to me receiving thousands and thousands of emails from people who say they are part of the precariat and they understand and no one's listening. And what's it really mean to be part of the precariat? It really means, as the old Latin for precarious said, you have to obtain everything by prayer. You are a supplicant. You don't have a sense of agency. You have a sense that you have to ask for favors. You have to be nice to people, not because you want to be nice, but because that is the way that you get some favors done. It's an undignified type of existence which many of our fellow citizens are experiencing right now. That is something that leads to a feeling that they're running on sinking sand. Running on sinking sand. And that leads to the next giant, which goes with all the other things, but if you're in the precariat, you face it every single day. 
you are in debt. You are living a life of indebtedness where one accident, one illness, one mistake could lead you to be out in the streets. Sometimes I use the term the bagged lady syndrome. People waking up in the middle of the night with a nightmare, thinking that one error and they're out in the streets with all their belongings in two paper bags. If you haven't seen anybody like that, you're blind. Everywhere we see it. And that sense of debt goes with the last two giants out there. The first one is the one that should worry every single one of us every single day. It's the threat of extinction. The threat that our species are disappearing. The threat that global warming is rushing towards us. The threat that the pollution is meaning toxic air for our children to be breathing and shortening their life expectancy. And it goes with many of the other things because we have an agenda of economic growth at a time of depleted resources and at a time when we shouldn't be trying to chase faster and faster growth. But you have to trace, chase fast growth if most of the returns to growth go to the plutocrats and the elite and the people down the bottom are not benefiting. So you have to have faster growth in order to raise living standards down here. And therefore, the politicians use the rhetoric of growth. We've got to accelerate growth at a time when we should be listening and thinking ecologically to reorient and recalibrate what we mean by growth. Now, all of these things, these first giants, can be addressed by giving people basic security. If you have basic security, a modest basic income, your life is less insecure. You can reduce the inequalities. You can encourage people to spend more time in activities like care, like voluntary work, like doing the things that we all want to do, instead of chasing the next euro and following a doctrine of jobs, 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 jobs. Many forms of work don't count as jobs. The economists have misled us. If I care for my elderly mother, that's not working. If I care for your elderly mother and you pay me a wage, it's working. It's sexist, it's stupid. But we need to face the reality that we need to have basic income for a good society. It's not a panacea, but it's an essential attribute. But what is the eighth giant? The eighth giant is coming up the other side of the bridge. And it should be scaring us. It's the giant of neo-fascism, of authoritarianism, an alliance between the plutocrats and the atavistic part of the precariat who listen to the sirens of neo-fascists who say, 
The enemy is the other. The enemy is not you, it's not me, it's the other. We are seeing something that I thought we would never see in my lifetime. A revival of a rhetoric, a revival of a set of images that go back to the 1930s. We're seeing authoritarian, panopticon developments. And it's this that I think, this giant, that is suddenly making a lot of corporate people, a lot of people in the center of politics, suddenly say, we must do something. They don't know what, but they're more open to this dialogue. We need a gentle society. We need a convivial society. We need to slow down. We need to rescue control of our lives. Recreate solidarity. And I think the precariat, the progressive part of the precariat in Italy and everywhere else, understands the existential threats of this model of global capitalism and are eking out, waiting, looking for, trying to create a new politics of paradise, with apologies to Dante, to escape from the politics of inferno, which is rushing towards us. I believe there's a new generation of politics, of politicians, of political movements. Many of us in this room would think they're not such good people, not such good messages, blah, blah, blah. But they're creating the space. They're creating a new energy. They're asking the right questions. That is why I welcome these new forms of politics. And I think all of us have a job. Politicians, by their nature, have spaghetti spines. Not very strong. Spaghetti spines. Our job is to stiffen their spines and make them bold. Make them feel that they are the leaders. They are creating and establishing a new convivial good society. And that is why I hope some of you in this room will join us in fighting for a basic income as part of a new distribution system. Thank you very much. All right. I hope I can get a guy on the podcast in the future. And I hope you learned something if you didn't know what universal basic income uh, is and uh, what it could mean for the world. I stand behind the concept. Now, another thing that's very important to mention is that Article 13 has passed in the EU. And I suggest anyone, even if not in the EU, to get a VPN, a virtual private network. The internet is in danger. Article 13 is threatening to have a damaging effect on the freedom of expression online. If you are a YouTube creator, you should definitely know this. Article 13 would make major online content platforms like YouTube, Imgur, and perhaps even Facebook responsible for copyrighted content. 
To be on the safe side, they would have to restrict content uploads severely. How? By filtering copyrighted content automatically. Problem? These filters wouldn't be able to distinguish between fair use and true copyright violations. Result? Everything, from innocent memes and political satire to actual copyright violations, gets banned. If you aren't a creator but follow your favorite vloggers, bloggers, and meme pages, you may not be able to see them anymore. What? You don't care about internet security? <laughs> what a loser. Pathetic, okay? You need to care about these things, you know? All your data could easily be stolen, just like that. If you have a VPN, it's protected. It's protection. Now to finish this episode, we are going to listen to Iho Mai by Nature Loves Courage. You can find more of Nature Loves Courage music on cdbaby.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Facebook. Just search for Nature Loves Courage, one word. Uh, of course, I'll post the relevant links in the program notes. If you ever feel lost, if you ever feel confused, just go to naturalbornalchemist.com and everything will be there. Next week, I'll be talking with someone that lives in Japan about the structure of reality. Freedom is in the mind. Oh, my God.
Oh, my. 